What is up, guys? My name is KJ, short for Khalil Jones, and this is Why Theology. Today, 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 we have a very special subject. If you guys know me, I love two subjects in theology. Number one is justification. As you guys know, that's how man is made right before God. What's more important than that? And number two is eschatology, the study of last things. And my very first episode was actually dealing with eschatology. So definitely go check that out before you listen to this episode. And so today, me and my pastor, can you introduce yourself real quick? Hey, I'm Creston Thomas, pastor at Christ Redeemer Church here in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. Yes, he's a great pastor. And uh, me and him have been going back and forth about this. And so finally, we in the lab and to cook some stuff up for y'all. No, nah, but basically we're going to have a friendly debate over which view in the millennium is the correct view. As you guys know, there are four primary views we're dealing with the millennium. So you guys go to Revelation, Revelation chapter 20, you will see something called the thousand years. And so today we're going to be tackling that. As you guys know, the four primary views are dispensationalism, historic pre-mill, I-mill, and post-mill. And all this has to deal with the millennium in Revelation chapter 20. Now, the primary thing is this right here, this debate that we're having is not really a central issue. So like whether or not I'm all-meal, pre-meal, dispensation, or post-meal, it doesn't um, dictate my salvation. So even though I believe Crescent is wrong in his view, he's still going to be in heaven when I get there, vice versa. <laughs> Would you, wouldn't you say that too, probably? Yeah, yeah, exactly, man. Uh, when you're thinking about the uh, eschatology, a lot of times uh, the church has been dealing with this for years and years. And so um, for us to come out of man, finally bring the final conclusion to the discussion that's been going on for over 2,000 years of so many different brothers that came before us, Martin Luther and Calvin and, and different gods came before us, have all in a sense of went through this and, and, and having agreed on everything with this. So, But I think it's going to be a good, friendly discussion today that we're going to learn a lot in this and uh, going to be able to see how this helpful also for the Christian walk on a day-to-day -day basis. So, so th uh, KJ, thank you, man, for inviting me out for this today. No problem, man. We come back. you see, guys. you see the layout. All right, guys, and we're back. We're finna get it in. Uh, I guess it'd probably be good for me to actually start. It'd probably help Kristen as well by actually read the text and then explain what we're dealing with. So you guys, uh, you can start the timer after I get that reading that. Could that help me out a little bit? But let me read the text real quick. The text is in Revelation chapter 20. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and the great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, Satan and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then John says, Then I saw thrones and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image. And had I received the mark over their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So today, my task is very simple. I'm going to put out there the biblical view of what the correct answer is and how we interpret this millennium. So, number one, 
I'll start off by saying there is actually, before we even get to millennium, there's actually four different ways to interpret the book of Revelation. Number one, you have what is known as a futuristic view, meaning that like what you read in Revelation is all future. Number two, you have what is called preterism. So when you read the book of Revelation, all these things you're reading happened in 70 AD. Number three is historicism. And it basically means that like, um, it's kind of, it kind of differs than the preterism view because it doesn't happen in 70 AD, but it happens over a period of time. So for example, I can read this chapter right here, and I would say that this chapter is not future tense, but it happened already in the past, for example. Of course, they don't believe that, but like just kind of different chapters, Revelation. And the last one is, uh, I'd, I'm going to butcher the word, basically idealist. And the basically idealist, that's why I, I read it, idealist. <laughs> basically like reading different things in Revelation and getting the ideal out of it. So, for example, um, the, the devil being bound, for example, like, they don't literally mean that he's bound, but, like, I can take an idea from that and bring it out to life. And so I'm going to tackle this issue from what is called the futuristic view. And so what I believe is the biblical truth is known as chiliasm, which is basically the church believes, or it's known as historic pre-millennium. And so the millennium, it basically is a word that means a thousand years. And so if you're pre-mill, that means you believe that Christ returns before the millennium. If you're post-mill, you believe that Christ returns after the millennium. And so I believe the Bible is very clear that Christ returns pre-millennium, before the millennium. And this is also what the early church believed. I have like over 20 quotes from all the church fathers in this time period and the churches, kind of what they held to. But first two things, um, what is historic pre-mill? So number one, historic pre-mill is titled historic pre-mill because it's what the, it was the eschatology of what the church believed. It was, that's why it's historic. So the Christians that live in the time of apostles and afterwards, they all believe in chiliasm or historic pre-mill. Number two, it's called historic pre-mill because it differs from dispensationalism. As you guys know, the Left Behind series, um, that basically God can return at any moment in time. The rapture is near. And so historic pre-mill says that no, we believe in a post-trib rapture, that Christ, he returns after the tribulation. And so just to give you a little framework of exactly what I believe personally as a historic pre-mill, is basically uh, a sequence of events will happen. Number one, I believe right now, currently, right now, we're all in tribulation. John opens the book up by saying, my fellow partaker in tribulation. And so I believe right now we're all in tribulation. And as the time draw nearer and nearer, to Christ returns, the world's gonna get worse and worse and worse. Now, many of my brothers in the Reformed community, they would say, no, the world's gonna get better and better. But I strongly disagree. And I'm pretty sure me and Chris will agree that the world is gonna get worse and worse and worse. As right now, we are in tribulation. I also believe towards the end of the tribulation, there'll be a widespread of the gospel going forward. I'm not saying that everybody will come to faith, but in the Oliver Discourse, Jesus lets us know that there's gonna be a widespread of the gospel. Also, what is known as the Antichrist, he will pop up on the scene and Christ will destroy him. But to be specific, let me give you guys the sequence of events. So number one, Christ is going to return physically and the dead in Christ, they will return when he returns. They'll be resurrected. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, all people that are in heaven right now, when Christ returns, they will rise from their uh, tombs and they will have their resurrected bodies. After that, the rapture will occur. So all Christians who are alive right now, when Christ returns, 
they will be resurrected or caught up into the sky to meet the Lord. Next, Christ then will destroy all evil on the earth. So all unbelievers at the, the present time of Christ's return, Christ will put away all uh, sin and death, including the devil. He will destroy the Antichrist, the false prophet, and all people. After this, the church then will then be reigning on earth physically for a thousand years. Now, there's kind of like some distinction between um, when you say your historic premium, there's kind of some distinction in that. So some people would say that the thousand years should be interpreted as a literal thousand years, as an actual literal 1,000 years. And some people who hold to historic premium would say it just basically means a long period of time. Now, I'm kind of unsure. I feel like it, it's possibly a, a literal 1,000 years, but whether or not it's literal or a long period of time, the essence is still the same. I believe that's going to be an actual reign of Christ on earth. And so that's kind of the essence of what historic premium teaches as well, that it's basically a literal, physically body Jesus Christ on earth reigning with the saints. And so it kind of differs from Amir because I don't believe that the church um, is reigning with Christ right now physically in a sense of like Jesus is here physically on earth. But I do believe that he's reigning in his church, but not physically here on earth. That's kind of the difference. And so Charles Spurgeon, he says about historic pre-mill, the nature of the kingdom is the being of the combination of the church age. Although Israel will experience a national repentance and salvation through Christ, its place in the kingdom is only in relation to the church. And so again, I don't believe in dispensationalism. I don't believe that there's two separate parts of God's kingdom, that you have Israel and you have the church. I believe that Israel is basically a continuation of the church. Well, the church is a continuation of Israel, I meant to say. So the church is the true Israel of God. And so everybody who is a part of spiritual Israel, that can be including Jews and Gentiles. So God doesn't have a separate plan for the Jews versus the Gentiles, but no, there is one body of believers. And so this one body of believers will reign with Christ on earth for a thousand years physically. That's kind of what Charles Spurgeon was saying. Number two, the rapture will be after the tribulation. So again, I'm not dispensationalist. I don't believe that at any moment Christ can return. Paul is very clear that the Antichrist will show up and then a great apostasy will happen. And then Christ will return after that. And so I don't have to worry about can Christ return tomorrow? I'm not saying that we shouldn't always be in readiness for our Lord. But what I am saying is Jesus is clear that he says that I won't return until these things happen. And so that's kind of what I want to talk about in my time period. I'm going to kind of hand it out to my pastor because that's kind of the essence of what I believe. I probably, let me add this too before I close. So most historic premium, again, they believe that Christ returns at the end of the tribulation before the beginning of the millennial kingdom. They also would say the millennium kingdom is seen in Revelation 20 is either a little thousand years or, you know, figuratively for a long period of time where Christ will reign on earth physically. Again, the, they believe the church is the focal point of this reign. Not that there's two bodies of believers, but that the church is the focal point of this reign. And lastly, some of us kind of differ on this, but personally, I believe that Christ will save a large amount of Jews when he returns as well and will restore them back to the land. Of course, we will all be together, so it's not like they're separate people, but I believe that Christ will restore the Jews back to the land. Of course, the remnant of the, I'm not saying that Christ is going to save every single Jew, but a remnant within physical Israel, Christ will save them 
I can't read Romans 9 through 11 and not come to that conclusion. But I'm going to hand it out to my pastor and we'll get started. Well, thank you, KJ. Uh, man, I tell you what, listening to you, man, I, I would listen and say, man, I agree with almost everything you're saying here. And so, um, I mean, what you said was really good information, really good things coming from the text. Um, a couple of things in there, I, I, like I said, I would um, like to, you know, push back on you on when we come to that time. But um, but let me first, uh, let me just mention a couple of things here. Uh, I'm going to be talking about Amil. And um, I, I'm going to go a different approach. Uh, KJ went uh, um, kind of dived on in there. Uh, but let, let me kind of define the word Amil. Um, the word Amil is uh, a word that is uh, Greek and Latin origins. Um, it's word Ah, which is Ah in the front of, in front of the mill, millennial. It's uh, which, which means no. And um, no and millennial means actually a thousand years, referring to Greek. So it's like no a thousand years. So I don't really too much care for that name, Amil, <laughs> the name in itself. But what is this name presenting that that's what really matters? And what it means, though, is that it's not a literal in the sense of a thousand years. Uh, this is a particular eschatology view that Christ is going to reign but when he reigns and everything, he's going to reign for a long period of time. Uh, so Amil believes this, that it's no, in the sense of, and KJ just mentioned a moment ago, you even have some people that's historical pre-meal and also post-meal that vary and disagree with, is this a literal thousand years or is not a literal thousand years? But we all can agree it's going to be a long amount of time, this particular reign of Christ. And so... Um, so the uh, and we get this from Revelation 20. That's when we see uh, several different actual uh, references of the word a thousand years, and um, and uh, and it's Revelation 20. Uh, but we don't get this anywhere else. I think we get it in Peter. Peter, something like one day is like a thousand years before God. You know, uh, one day before the Lord. And so, other than that, a thousand. This is the only time we really get this millennial reign. Is here in Revelation chapter 20. But um, let me let me again let me kind of survey what's taking place here. Um, we're trying to understand eschatology, which is the study of end times. We're trying to understand though is that how is these things, how things going to end? You know, how did Christ design things to be, and how things really going to end at end times? Well, um, I think if we start in Revelation twenty, I think it's kind of difficult to really see how can we understand the different eschatological positions. I think we should start not only in, in Genesis chapter 1, but throughout the entire Bible. How the entire Bible, the Revelation 20 is not going to tell us anything different from what the whole Bible has been telling us. And so whatever position we come on in Revelation 20, it should be supported from the rest of the Bible. And also, Revelation 20, we need to understand first, what's the nature of the book of Revelation? The book of Revelation is, first of all, we know that the portion that written down in the book of Revelation is John. Um, if you turn to, to, to um, Revelation chapter 1, um, we got a unique um, encounter here in chapter 1 in Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must surely come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angels unto his servant John. So the angel came and gave John all this was going to be revealed. The angel came 
and gave John the word of God, what was revealed here in heaven. Verse 2, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and all things. John has done that. Of all the things he saw. Blessed is he that readeth and they and they that hear the word of the prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. So John is letting us know though is that what he's revealing to us is that the time is at hand of what is taking place here in Revelation. Um, the time here it referring to is um, the end times. And not only John, we also see this also in Paul. Paul and also the gospel talks about now we're in the last days. We're in the last days. It's all over the place throughout the scriptures. But John also tells us too in Revelation chapter 1 that also he's also a partaker in the trials and the tribulation with us as well. And this is right here in the first century. And John was actually going through tribulations in his day. And John is writing down these things. The more the tribulation that's going to come here in the future. Uh, but in chapter 1 as well in the book of Revelation, you have this unique picture of John letting us know and what John has been revealed to, the actual the state of the church. The epistles, book, the, all the epistles, 1 Timothy, you know, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Romans, the book of Revelation, all of these books were written to the church. It was written to believers. And by writing to believers, it was written to encourage the believers. And what was what, why would the why would these books need to be encouraging to the believers? Because they were suffering. They were struggling with temptation. They were struggling with all the things that we face every single day right now. Persecution. They were facing that in the early church. And so John is writing these things down. And the Lord is revealing these things to John, letting the church know that Jesus Christ reigns. Regardless of what you're going through, Jesus Christ reigns forevermore. And Satan. He will def be defeated. And a lot of people uh, look at our meal in the way of that the church reigns. Yes, the church is reigning, but not just the church reign, it's Jesus reigns. Jesus is the one that reigns. By us being united to Jesus, we reign with Christ. So this book is right here. It's getting at it that Jesus reigns, and those who keep his commandment, who truly trust in him, that truly believe in him, they will reign with him forevermore. But those that who do not believe in him, do not continue trusting him, they would not reign with him. They would de be defeated just like Satan would de be defeated. And that's why he tells us here in the end of chapter Revelation, chapter 1. When he's talking about Jesus is in the midst of what? The lampstands. He said he's in the midst of the lampstands uh, and with seven stars, which were the angels, and the left stand. What was the lampstand? What does the lamp do? A lamp shines a light. And what did he tell what the lampstands represent? The churches. The lampstands represent the churches are put to be the light of the world. They should be a light of Christ to the world. But it's been a danger in the church. That's why you got in Revelation chapter 2. You mentioned seven churches. And this word seven is used throughout Revelation everywhere. Really, really representing this completeness. But we see there's seven churches, and these seven churches are made up, supposed to be made up of believers. But John writes, and the Lord has something against each one of these churches. They weren't truly faithful. They were afraid. They struggled. Some were lukewarm. Some putting up in the sense of these having fake Jews in them. Some putting up with this other stuff. They put up with all these different things. But what Jesus tells them at the end of each church, he said, whoever conquer, 
will get eternal life. Whoever conquer, get eternal life. Whoever conquers, over and over, who conquers in this? Jesus is writing to them is that if you're not truly in Christ, if you don't conquer, you continue your sin, you will not have eternal life. And what did he do? He goes on after he talked about the churches. Then he goes on now and talks about Jesus reigning. Who can open up these scrolls in, 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 in Revelation, I believe, 5? Who can open up these scrolls? And the elders said, weep no more. The one, the, the tribe of Judah, the, the star of David, the one which is Jesus Christ, he reigns supreme forevermore. And by Jesus reigning supreme, he will put everything under his feet. And guess what, guys? Does that sound familiar? That sounds like the Gospels, doesn't it? That sounds like the Gospels. How Jesus comes in and brings his kingdom in. It said the kingdom is at hand. If the kingdom is at hand, repent, the kingdom is at hand. What kingdom? It's Jesus' kingdom. Jesus has reigned. When he was born, when he came into this world, when he was actually confirmed by John the Baptist and by the Father, Jesus reigned supreme. And by Jesus' reign, every single thing. That's why John the Baptist told the actual Pharisees, he said, hey, you brought vipers. What are you talking about? The serpent here. The serpent in Genesis, the serpent that wants to deceive people. But Jesus goes on and said, no. Jesus comes and said, no, this is, this is my kingdom. I'm bringing a new kingdom that I reign supreme. And I tell you what, that's how you understand the book of Revelation. You look at Revelation 5. Look at Revelation 6. Every single thing, you're going to see these four things here. Listen to this. These four things you're going to see. You're going to see Jesus reign. All right? You talk about the horse, the white horse, the black horse, the red horse. Jesus reigns, but guess what? It's going to be death. It's going to be pestilence. All these things are going to come, and God is going to allow those things to happen, but Jesus reigns. But also, it's going to be a beast. It's going to be another beast. Like, all these things are going to come, but Jesus reigns. And who is faithful? The one that has the mark on their forehead of obedience, they're going to get eternal life. But those who have the mark on the forehead of disobedience, they will not get eternal life. That's what our mill is getting at. Our mill is not, you can't understand the book of Revelation in the sense of, okay, the lampstands. Oh, he's talking about lampstands. No, it's not about lampstands, it's the churches. It's symbolic language talking about something literal. It's idealist. It's an idealist view. And we see the same thing in the book. We see the same thing in the book of Romans. Romans talks about this Israel of God. He wasn't talking about ethnic Israel. He was talking about this spiritual people of God. He's talking about the olive tree. You know, he, he talks about all these different things. He used all these examples to let us know he's talking about something spiritual. And the book of Revelation as well is getting at the same exact thing here. It's letting us know that it's a it's a realistic. It's a realistic uh, uh, um, setting that's taking place. That these things in Revelation are actually happening right now. But he's communicating these things in the sense of uh, using a terminology that they'll be familiar with. But he represented spiritual things, how he'll communicate these things throughout the book of Revelation. And so uh, as we go all the way through, we can talk about the, the 144,000. You can talk about the... Um, um, this, this woman that was hid in the wilderness, all those things work together that Christ reigns and by Christ reigning that he will, in a sense of subdue everything under his feet. So you get the, you get the actual revelation chapter 20, we get the same as that thing too in revelation 20, that Jesus reigned 
um, Jesus reigns supreme, and that while him reigning supreme, that the thousand years or the, the non-literal thousand years and everything that's going to happen here, Jesus is going to reign during that particular time. And so um, I'm going to stop right there and we kind of can go more to it as we walk through it. Wonderful said, wonderful said, man. That was wonderful. I probably should go and say as well that like <clears throat> me and Kristen are both in agreement that this book is to be interpreted in a symbolic sense. And so by being historic premium, by no means am I saying that every single thing in the book of Revelation should be interpreted literal. That would be crazy and heretical. But what I am saying is that through the symbolism, the book itself tells us what's symbolic and what's literal. For example, in English, for example, when you say similes and metaphors, and when you say he's as strong as a lion, you don't mean that he's a lion, but such words as like and as dictate when their symbolism, you know, is occurring. Or when you have a case of a vision, when you have a vision, you know, okay, this is probably not literal because it's a vision. But anyway, me and Chris are both in agreement. I probably couldn't disagree with a lot of things he said because I too believe that Christ is reigning right now. But I believe he's going to come when he returns and reigns for a thousand years physically on earth. But let me get this rebuttal started. The first thing I should like to mention is that many Amils today, they say that the book of uh, Revelation chapter 20 is kind of retelling the same story of chapter 19. Now, before I tell you why I disagree with that, first, me and Chris are both in agreement that, number one, the book should be interpreted symbolically. But there are some literal things that symbolism tells us. But, for example, when you read Genesis, it's very narrative. Like this actually happened, then this happened, then this happened. For example, the creation account. All those things happen in a specific uh, time or frame or order. When we get to the book of Revelation, we can't read the book of Revelation in that sense because it's not a narrative, but it's a term that we call recapitulation. And the basic means, for example, imagine if you were coming down the street from the north, the north side of the street and somebody else is coming down the street from the south side of the street and you both saw a wreck in the middle of the road, you guys would tell different stories, but the same message would be the same. In the same way, that's what John is doing. He's telling the same story over and over, but he's giving us different vantage points. But in certain chapters, he's telling the same story, but if the process or the thought process continues, then he's telling the same thought. And so number one, what Ami was, many of them say chapter 20 is telling the same story in chapter 19. So let me tell you why that is false. The reason why it's false is because of a Greek word known as Kai. Kai basically is a, conject a conjecture word. You guys know um, like, ass, and but. Those are conjectures. And so many conjectures that we use today in English is like and, or then, or also. And so John, he, of course, was writing this book, and so he knew the thought process is continuing. And so Revelation 20 actually doesn't start in chapter 20. It starts in chapter 19. Let's look real quick in chapter 19, verse 11. It says, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Who is that? Obviously, the Word was God and the Word was with God. This is Jesus Christ, right? So Jesus is returned finally. It's been 2,000 years, and finally here in Revelation, Jesus returned. And at his return, look in verse 20 of chapter 19. It says, And then the beast was seized, 
and with him the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceives those who receive the mark of the beast and those who worship his image. These two were thrown alive in a lake of fire, which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword. Chapter 20, it says, Kai, or Dan, or you can also interpret it also, the Greek word, of course. It says, Dan, I saw Andrew coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss. And so John is continuing the same thought process of 19. It's not retelling the same story, but it's the same thought process. So here in Revelation 19, there's a lot of Greek words, there's a lot of Kai words that we can interpret real quick. Let me go there real quick. So uh, Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, it says, then, verse 17, it says, then, verse 19, it says, then, chapter 20, verse 1, it says, then, chapter uh, 20, verse 4, it says, then, verse 11 and 20, it says, then, verse 14 and 20, it says, then, 21, it says, then, 21, verse 3, it says, then, 21, verse 5, it says, then. So all throughout Revelation 19, all the way up to 22, John is continuing the same process, the same thought. So we really don't need chapter break because John is writing the same thought process here in this text. As you guys know, we didn't have chapter breaks when John was writing this to the churches, but rather it was a letter. And so if somebody was reading this, they would say, okay, John is writing the same thought process because he keeps on using the word then or am. If you guys use and or then in English today, you know that I've continued my same thought process. So that's the first reason why I disagree with Amil because John... Is continuing the same thought process. Number two, there is two separate resurrections. Many who believe in Amil say there's only one resurrection. But here in our text, we see there's two separate resurrections, one for the just and one for the unjust. Jesus says in Luke 14, verse 14, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, if there's a resurrection of the righteous, that implies there's a resurrection of the unjust, right? Acts 24, 24 verse 15 it says, there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Here you guys see that there is a resurrection of the just and unjust. But the problem is, they don't happen at the same event. They happen in two separate occurrences. Another passage that kind of solidifies this is in Luke chapter 20, verse 34. Jesus says to them, the sons of this age marry and the women are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to obtain to that age and resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot even die anymore. For they are like angels and are the sons of God, being the sons of the resurrection. Now the key words in what Jesus is saying is this, those who are considered worthy to attain that in that age, the resurrection from the dead, neither marry or are given in marriage, for they cannot even die anymore. They are like angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So Jesus says here, to obtain this special revelation, you must be considered worthy. You must be like you are like an angel. You are called sons of God, and you are called sons of resurrection. And Paul, he says something similar to this in Philippians 3. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Now, if both the resurrection of the just and the unjust happens at the same time, point in time, why would Paul strive to obtain this if he knew he was going to get this anyway? It wouldn't make sense, right? Because there's a distance between the first and the second. Paul also says in um, 1 Corinthians 15, but there is an order to his resurrection. Christ was raised at the first of his harvest. Then all 
who belonged to Christ will be raised when he comes back. After that, the end will come when he will turn the kingdom over to God, having destroyed every ruler and power. So notice this. When he returns, only those in Christ will be raised. It says after he returned, he will then hand the kingdom over to God to the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority and power. Didn't that sound like Revelation 20 that I read earlier? When he returns, he'll bind the devil and he will destroy the devil. He's already destroyed the false prophet Antichrist in chapter 19. But here in our text, you see this right here. So there's a distance between the first and second resurrection. Last thing, me and Creston are both in agreement that right now, currently, the devil is bound. What we mean by bound, we mean that he is limited in his power. As you guys know, in the Old Testament, all these nations were blinded by the devil. And now we get to the New Testament. Uh, Christ in his ministry, some say on the cross, he has bound the strong man. And so now these nations that were in darkness in the Old Testament, now these Gentile nations are coming to the church. And so right now, currently, the devil is limited in his power. He cannot keep the nations from coming into um, the church or being saved. But if chapter 20 follows chapter 19, this right, this binding right here doesn't happen until Christ returns. Because the setting right here that is set, it says when he returns. So when he returns, that means the devil in this text will have to be bound when he returns. And so whether or not we interpret this binding literal or spiritually, the text is kind of clear that this is kind of a, it's not, it's not a limiting of the devil's power, but it's more of a uh, eliminating of his power. As you guys look in verse 3 of Revelation 20, it says, He threw him into the abyss and shut it and stood it over him so that he would not deceive the nations. So you think about this, the abyss, I don't have a lot of time to explain this, but things that are in the abyss are not able to come out of earth. Once you're in the abyss, you can't come out. So whether or not the devil is actually going to literal abyss, symbolically, using this language, shut it and sealed it over him, the devil is not able to come out of his abyss. And so I got 20 seconds. <laughs> Let me see. Basically, I wrap up by saying this. Uh, yes, the devil is bound, but this binding occurs here is differently. If you guys read Revelation 20, um, the devil is released after a short while. So he's put in his abyss or this prison, and then he's released. But if this binding here that occurs... It's the same binding that happened to the cross. How is the devil able to undo this binding? If Christ's death on the cross bounded him. Thank you, KJ, for the rebuttal. Um, I like to say, you said a lot of good things. Again, I, I agree with a lot of things with, but uh, um, a couple of things that really got me. I think you mentioned, um, you mentioned several things here. One of the things you mentioned and everything is about the word in Greek called Kai. You were saying, well, in the past, the Bible was just all these manuscripts. It didn't have any chapters. It didn't have any verses. It was a book of manuscripts. And so chapter 19 has Kai, 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 and 20 comes in with Kai, Kai, Kai. But guess what, KJ? Chapter 18 has Kai, Kai, Kai. Chapter 17 has Kai, Kai, Kai. Chapter 16 has it. If you want to go that route and everything, is that none of it actually fits together then, but we see all of it fits together. And so with the pre-meal approaching this, by disconnecting 19 from 20, any type of relationship here, you miss the continuity of the beautiful picture of what John is doing in the entire book. And in chapter 19, what is happening in chapter 19 is that uh, Christ, the, the beast, is actually defeated. And guess what's going to be defeated now? And actually in Revelation 20, it's going to be the actual dragon. I mean, the, uh, the serpent, ancient serpent. 
uh, is going to be actually um, um, is going to be defeated. Um, yeah, the dragon. I'm sorry, the dragon is going to be defeated. The same thing I mentioned to you guys earlier that that the book of Revelation is just, is this simple in the sense of to understand this book. Christ reigns supreme. He will put all his enemies under his footstools, under his feet. He's gonna put man, unbelieving man, under his feet. He's gonna put Satan, his deceitful self, the dragon, he's gonna put him under his feet. And he's gonna destroy this earth and he's gonna bring in a new heavens and a new earth. It's that simple. With a pre-meal approach, what KJ is presenting to us today, it messes up the continuity of all that. It, it makes the, the actual plan. It add other things and everything, and you can't understand it now. Now the book is just so confusing now. But the approach I'm presenting to everybody, it makes it so easy to understand the book, how it all fits together within this book. Um, another thing, too, a lot of times pre-mill get wrong, the first resurrection and the actual, the second resurrection. But but before I get to the resurrection, let me mention a couple of things. A lot of the pre-mill, one of the things they mentioned is that the millennials are going to come in the future. Christ is going to come down. And actually, then he's going to reign and he's going to have his kingdom. Um, I see something a little bit different, though, in the Gospels. Let me just read a couple of verses that I see. And you guys, it might be familiar to you. Um, think about it. Mark 1, 14 and 15. It says, Jesus teaches that the time for the kingdom, it said, uh, the time of the kingdom is at hand. Um the kingdom of God is, is at hand. It tells us in Mark 14 and 15. What is Jesus talking about? He said his kingdom is at hand. He's on earth. He's walking with the disciples, but it said his kingdom is at hand. And guess what he goes on to do? He starts healing people. He starts bringing in and having authority over everything that comes his way. We see the same thing happen as well. And it says something in Acts 22. When God the Father said, Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. Peter mentioned that it points to David. Jesus was sitting at the right hand of the Father. Even though he walked on earth, he still reigned supreme. But when he actually died and resurrected, he sat at the right hand. Jesus has been reigning. He sat supreme. And he said, the kingdom is at hand all over the place here. 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Jesus shall hand over the kingdom after he has put everything on the earth or under, his I mean, under his authority. Uh, John 18, 36, Jesus come in and said, hey, my kingdom, my kingdom is not of this world. He's letting you know he's King Jesus all through these passages. And saying that, well, something in the future, he's going to be king in the future, he's going to come back. No, Jesus has been reigning. And by him reigning is that that for those who submit to his, his, um, his kingship, those who truly believe in him, those are the one that get eternal life. It's not a second chance down the road. It's not a second chance that, well, Jesus come, now we're going to have a time. Actually, uh, it's going to be a time in the sense of that people are going to get a chance to repent and things of that nature. I just I just don't see that because based upon um, several verses here. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. We don't see any time. When Jesus comes back, he comes back to judge. Listen to this. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a, a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, angel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then who, we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the cloud to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Hebrews 9, 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, 
not to deal with the sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Some pre-meal and everything say he's going to come back almost three times. You know, he's going to, he came back once. He's going to come back again and come. It's simple. This is just simple. It tells us, I mean, in our text here, Hebrews 9, 28, he's going to come back. He's going to judge the world. Revelation 1, 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. It didn't say he's going to come twice. It said he's coming with the cloud and those who pierce him and all the tribes of the earth will well on account of him. Even so, amen. Let me give you another second Peter 310. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a war. It's going to pass away when he come back. He's going to judge the world. And so to say that, well, it's going to be another thousand years. I just don't see that in continuity of what's saying in all the rest of scriptures and things of like that. Let's move on to the resurrection. In Revelation 20, it talks about this first resurrection and actually the second resurrection. Well, that's one of the clearest passages, I think, in all scriptures. <laughs> because we see it all throughout scriptures that we all have a first death, right? We're born into this world dead in sin. We all were dead into sin. But what did Christ do? He made us alive for those who believe. But it is a second death that's coming, right? It's a second death. So everybody was born into this world because of Adam. We are born into sin. We all come to this world dead into our sin. But also, for those who doesn't believe in Christ, they're going to have a second death, right? For them that truly don't believe, they will be punished in hell forevermore. But for believers, not only that unbelievers get that, but also for believers, we have a first resurrection. For those who truly believe in Christ, if you truly believe in Christ, you are raised with him in newness of life. All throughout the gospel, we are raised in Christ. We are in Christ. But also it's a second resurrection that he, now he's going to actually, we're going to our bodies. You know, we're going to get new bodies at the end. So it's not in the sense of, and um, uh, in the rebel, I mean, it's trying to not understand this in the sense of it's not saying something that's so different. It all works together. And, that, and that's why you see it's so beautiful how the continuity of the entire book of Revelation how it gets upon the symbolic things is pointing to literal things throughout the rest of the gospels and things of that nature. And so um, we see, we see this uh, uh, amazing picture of uh, how God is working through this. Then another team uh, pre-mill gets wrong and everything. KJ kind of mentioned here about the devil being bound and say he's bound with chains. And so they saying, well, the devil being bound, that means he cannot do anything. Read the text. What did it tell us in Revelation 20? They said in verse 3, they said he was, what, he was bound so he wanted to see the nations. He wanted to see the nation. They weren't saying that he can't tempt us and move around. They said he cannot deceive the nation. That's why you have in the New Testament the Christian church. The Gentiles was not able to come in yet. But all of a sudden, he's bound. He can't deceive the nation. Now the Gentiles come into faith. And so this is another picture, a clear picture how using the symbolic language is pointing to something that is very literal throughout the text. All right, now we're going to go into our rebuttal question and answer time. So basically, I'll ask Christian a question, and um, he must <laughs> kind of give me an answer and vice versa in his time. We'll have uh, eight minutes apiece to do that. We'll do it twice, and then we'll do closing remarks. So I feel like a lot of your time, you spend like most of your time like uh, debating what is called dispensational pre mill. Like I told you, I'm historic pre mill. It's a lot of things you agree with, I agree with. I don't agree that Christ is coming more than once. I agree that he's only coming one time. So we are both in agreement with that. 
But anyway, the first thing I would have to mention, you mentioned about the first resurrection and the second resurrection being something more of a spiritual thing rather than a literal thing. So my question to you is, if the first resurrection is more of a symbolic thing, look with me real quick in Revelation 20, verse 4. Yeah. It says, Then I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and a judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast. And they had not received the mark on their forehead. So the text lets us know who these people are. These are people who had been beheaded for the, their testimony in Jesus. So they were already believers, and they had got their head cut off for believing in Jesus. So anytime you see the Greek word resurrection, it's known as anastasis, you know. And anastasis always means a physical resurrection. So my question to you is, if these people were killed and beheaded, how is this spiritual and not literal? That's a good, good question, uh, KJ. Um, the, the thing about uh, trying to understand this book of Revelation, like I say, it's a very unique book, but it's talking about what has already happened. In, Thomas said what already happened. It's talking about in the sense of the apocalyptic symbolic language that actually um, um, lets us know that these are literal things, but we need to understand it in a symbolic way. Um, by you asking that question, though, is that what made the resurrection and everything spiritual and every time you see the bird revelation has always been something that's physical um that's thinking what about the word th thrones in verse four mm -hmm. the, the word thrones the same way every time you think about the word thrones throughout the throughout the bible it's also talking about something literal the throne of the king the throne this and that but the throne throughout the book of revelation every single time is talking about something spiritual every time you see the word thrones it, re it represents something that's spiritual at the spiritual kingdom so if that represents something spiritual, why cannot the word resurrection, first resurrection, mean something spiritual? But let me say one more thing. You kind of picked something out of that verse. You said, I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus. And you stopped there, kind of. You, read, you, you, you fast read through everything else. The ones that were beheaded, but not just the ones beheaded. It says some more things there. You keep looking in that text you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. Neither his name, it said, neither their had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. It said, uh, oh, go, go be the I'm sorry. In which they had not worshipped the beast. Anybody that worshipped anything outside of God worshipped the beast. So these right here, not the ones that's just been beheaded for the faith. These are the ones in the sense of didn't worship out the evil one. These are true believers here. These are true believers. This is us. This is the church. This is everyone that believe in Christ that are that are put to death for the sake of Christ's name as believers. We will reign with Jesus. We will reign. We all partake in the first resurrection together. And another thing too, Anastasia, you're right. Um, every time you see this word, it talks about a physical, uh, a physical, um, a physical uh, throughout the uh, the book of um, the Bible. It's always talking about a physical resurrection. But also, like I said, the word throne talks about something spiritual. But also the book of Revelation is a book that's getting to the spiritual realm of things. Letting us know that we suffer on earth, guess what? You get heaven. You suffer on earth, you get heaven. He's pointing us right here to a symbolic way that resurrection now is pointing to something that we have in Christ now. For those who truly believe, not only the first resurrection, but also we're going to have a second resurrection when we get our new bodies. Okay, so again, it says, Then I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was given to them. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. So these people had been beheaded for their testimony in Jesus because of the word of God. And then it says, And those who have not worshipped the beast. Now, who is this beast? 
and Revelation 16. Let's go over there real quick. The book tells us who the beast is. It says in Revelation 16, verse 10, and then the fifth angel poured out his bowl and on the throne of the beast and his kingdom became darkened. His, what is the his, right? The his, this beast is the antichrist. In Revelation 17, John tells us again who this beast is. Verse 17, uh, chapter 17, verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on earth whose name has not been written in this book of life from the foundation of the world will wonder when they see this beast that he was and is and he was and is not and will come. Here's the mind which is wisdom. The seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman sits, and there are seven kings. Five have fallen, and one as other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain a little. Let me go real quick. Wow. The beast which was and is not is himself also an eight, and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. The ten horns which you saw are the ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they would give their power and authority to the beast. So this beast is the Antichrist. You notice in Paul's reading of the Antichrist, he says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come, that is the rapture and the second coming, will not come unless the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. And so, here in Paul, which is not a symbolic book, it's a literal book, he says that Christ will not return until he comes and kills the man of lawlessness. Well, we go to Revelation chapter 19, that's exactly what takes place. Christ returns and he destroys the Antichrist. Well, in chapter 20, then I saw thrones and they that sat on them, who the judgment was given to them, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony in Jesus. If you read the book of Revelation, you know that the Antichrist has been killing Christians. And also these Jews and many people um, in this time period uh, come into faith, of course, because, again, we don't believe in a preacher of rapture. So we believe that the Christ, uh, the church is going to go through tribulation. And so while the church is going through tribulation, um, people are being killed for their faith in God. These are the ones who come and reign with Christ for a thousand years. It also says, and those that not worship the beast of his image. So how can you symbolize that text there? I got to take it, so I'll let you, kind of let you respond, though. Yeah, I think um, I think Sam Stone did a great job, and he talks about Revelation 13, um, and I think in Revelation 12, talked about this beast that comes out of the sea. But it feels that this beast you referring to is that like this major antichrist. But but first of all, John always lets us know that he said anyone that doesn't believe in God is the antichrist. So antichrist exists in that particular time. And so Sam Stone says that it appeared that Revelation 13, 1 through 18, a temporary parallel with Revelation 12, 6, 13 through 17, and explain in more detail the precise nature of the stink of the dragon, Satan, persecution of the people of God. In fact, Revelation 13 described the earthly government, political, economic, as well as individual powers of the earth through whom Satan works. Though Satan has been defeated, and we talked about in Revelation 12, 17 to 12, 7 through 12, he can still oppress the saints. And prominent way in which he asserts the nefarious influence and ways of war against the seed of the woman is through the activities and oppression of the beast. The beast is what has been used through the entire time. God, Satan has used to oppress the people of God. The same thing I've been telling you guys, go about the Revelation 1 and 2. 
for those who does the will of God and trust the Lord. Do not give in to the beast. Do not give in to lying, stealing. Do not give in. You will make it to the end. So this beast that we're referring to are, are the ones that in a sense, the beast that we're referring to are the, is the one that Satan worked through to bring about his kingdom. That's the beast. All right. Now it's your turn. Uh, thank you, uh, KJ. Um, uh, a couple of things here is that um, um, the question I have here is that, so how do you, in the sense of make up for, how does Revelation 19 and 20 work together? As far as what? And as far as what, what is John revealing to us? It has a beast here and it has a dragon. What's the difference there? So if you look in chapter 19, verse 20, it says, The beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the sign in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image, were thrown alive into the lake of fire. You go to chapter 20 in Revelation, when Satan is thrown into like his final destruction, uh, chapter 20, verse 10, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And so these are three separate people. The beast, the false prophet, and the, um, so basically it's the devil, the antichrist, and the false prophet. And so the antichrist is this beast, as I just kind of told in my kind of my time. It was short, but I kind of explained that the beast is the antichrist. Yeah. So the beast is the antichrist, and the beast is subjected to Satan or the dragon, or what were you say? How what's their relationship? So with it's the dragon, basically an unholy trinity. So as you guys know, Satan is trying to mock God himself, and so he is an unholy trinity. He, in a sense, is the father of this trinity. The uh, Antichrist will be the son, and then you have the spirit or the false prophet. And so the father, quote-unquote, and his unholy trinity, the devil giving his power to the beast and the false prophet to do these things. Yeah. So um, so, so you would say that the beast is defeated in, in 19, and 20 what's happening. It's defeated. The, so the dragon. If you remember what I said in Thessalonians, Paul says that when Christ will return, he will destroy the Antichrist. Yeah. It's very clear. So that, that one's not symbolic. So we know that. But when we get to Revelation, exactly what Paul said is actually happening in chapter 19. But that Greek word, Kai, he says then, to open us up in Revelation chapter 20. And then the devil, after he's released from the prison, is thrown into this um, eternal damnation, the second death, with where the beast and the false prophet were also. So it's three separate people. Yeah. Uh, so it's, 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 it's separate for, so it's, you said three separate people. Um, so it's Satan kind of running the things, running this yeah. within these, you say the three separate people, the unholy, within, trinity. The unholy trinity. Okay. Um, another thing too, uh, now when, um, when, uh, are we in the millennium now? No. Okay. When, when, uh, when will we be in the millennium? Um, as soon as Christ returns. It says here again, chapter 19, verse 11, it sets the context up of chapter 20. And so without Christ returning, like here in chapter 19, this stuff right here in chapter 20 can't happen. Okay. Christ is going to come back and he's going to reign in the millennium on earth. Before that, Christ is going to return and destroy all sin and evil. Like you said, he's going to destroy all sin and evil, including the Antichrist and the false prophet. Then the reign of a thousand literal year reign on earth will happen where Satan is bound in a literal abyss. And then after that, he's released, and Christ will destroy him finally. So, so who are the people left then? If Christ destroyed all the people, and Satan is bound to make war against God, who are the people that's making war with? Who's the people with Satan making war with God? Yes. So, if you actually go to Zechariah to the fourteen, another text that kind of proves um, there's some kind of like 
time frame between the new heavens and new earth and then the millennium because this stuff can't i don't have a lot of time but i'm gonna try to fast redo this Zechariah 14 verse 1 behold a day is coming for the lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you for i will gather all the nations against jerusalem to battle and the city will be captured the houses plundered the woman ravished and have a city but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city then the lord himself will go forward and fight against those nations as when he fights on the day of a battle in that day his feet will stand on the mount of olives which is in front of jerusalem remember in acts uh, when jesus is ascended to heaven and exalted the right hand of the father the angels told the apostles why you stand here because jesus will come back the same way he left but then the text in acts also lets us know that they left the mount of olives and so jesus returns the same way he left which is on the mount of olives and so zachariah 14 it tells you that this is the context the Mount of Olives, when he returns. Well, you skip down to Zechariah 14, verse 9. It says, The Lord will be king over all earth in that day. The Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. All the land will be changed to a plain from Geba to Ramah, son of Jerusalem, south of Jerusalem, I meant. But Jerusalem will be raised and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate, as far as the place of the first gate, to the corner of the gate, to the tower of Hanel, to the king's wine. Listen to this, verse 11 in Zechariah 14. People will live in it, and there will no longer be a curse in Jerusalem. Would oh, my bad. They get minute out, but it's cool. So look at verse uh, fourteen, verse twelve. Now this will be a plague on which, now this will be the plague with which the Lord will strike all those people who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot. I'm skipping on a little bit. Verse thirteen. It will come about that day that a great panic from the Lord will fall on them, that they will seize one another's hand, and that. I got to paraphrase because I want to take all this time up, but basically. This context is when Jesus returns. And so if you notice in this text, it basically says that Jesus will be king over this whole land. This is the millennium. And in this millennium, people are still not obeying Christ. They have, a, they have a choice to either obey him or disobey him. Because if you disobey him, it says in this text, a plague is going to hit that nation. And so these people, I would say, are the ones that when Christ returns, these are Jews who come to faith, who have not received their glorified body because they came to faith when christ returns they're not raptured up i, I think too um i think we might be out of time now um uh one, one thing too uh i see as well when you, when you think about like in the new testament it talks about john the baptist it's in old testament prophesied that john the baptist is going to come but did john the baptist actually come in the new testament elijah i'm mean, elijah i'm sorry elijah going to come in old testament yeah i'm sorry about that elijah going to come but did elijah actually come I think he, so this is more pre-mill stuff like that. So like in the future, it talks about in Revelation, two witnesses will come to like tell Jerusalem about the, so I think he will come in the future, but I feel like it's a type. John the Baptist was a type of Elijah that came. So, so the, so the two witnesses then, um, well, let me get, the, I'm going to ask that question next. So Jesus told us who the John, uh, who the Elijah was. Jesus said it was John the Baptist. And so the old Testament said, no, Elijah was coming, but Jesus said, no, it's John the Baptist. Jesus interpreted Elijah to be John the Baptist. Jesus is showing us how to interpret the Bible in the Old Testament now. So even though you mentioned and everything about Jesus coming and sending on the olives and things of that nature, um, he, he came and ascended from the Mount of Olives. So he's going to come back and his feet's going to touch the ground. Um, I think, you know, you're seeing how scriptures flows together. Uh, just the beauty of the symbolism in there is that um, even talking about Jesus' birth, how they described his birth and everything throughout. Jesus came in the New Testament and all the things, you know, in Ramah, they're going to cry out. They're going to do these certain things. 
It don't seem like none of those things happen. I don't think like he just seemed like he just was born. We understand those things in a spiritual way now. And New Testament shows us how to serpent. Some people call it allegorical or allegory. But Romans, um, Paul does it. Not just, you know, Augustine, Paul does it, you know, throughout. And so to come in and try to make this so like the continuity when Zechariah happened, this right here gonna happen exactly the way how it happened to Zechariah. I think it doesn't happen like that. I think it's very in the sense of it's spiritualized and it's a literal meaning is happening here, but it's spiritualized for a greater meaning that is actually pointed pointed in here. And so I might be out of time, but let me ask one more question. You mentioned something about the two witnesses and everything. Um, who, who are you saying? You said who are the two witnesses in the pre-meal or your, your position? Yes. And so this is one of those things that like, of course, when it happens, we'll know more information. But as far as I'm concerned, many people, especially um, the early church, they believe that these two witnesses, one of them will be Elijah. And the other one, um, I forgot the person that was taken up when Noah, before Noah's days. What was his name? Enoch. Enoch, yeah. So many of the early church fathers, they believe that it would be Enoch and uh, Elijah. Many people who are proponents of historic prism, they all say it would be Elijah and Moses because of the transfiguration. And so I'm not quite sure, but we are in agreement that it probably is will be Elijah as one of those witnesses. Yeah, so um, and so and by coming with that position, I'm, I'm out of time here. By coming with that position, um, I still, you said Elijah and Enoch, that's, that, it, doesn't, it doesn't fit with the rest of the book of Revelation. And so with the odd male stance on this is that the actual two witnesses is the beautiful picture of the church. It's the Gentile believers and the Christian believers. That's how the two witnesses are. And these two witnesses are going to make what? They're going to bear witness. They're going to one that's, that are going to be killed for the faith. They're going to be persecuted for the faith. And so that's the same thing I've been saying the whole time is, is Jesus reigns. His people will reign with him. They're going to suffer, but Jesus will put everything on his feet. That's, that's how everything fit together. So with that position, what you're saying is I just don't see how that fit with the continuity through the, after the book of Revelation. All right. So this will be the speed round. So basically, um, I ask Christian a question, and he has a minute to respond, and I have eight minutes total to like do this rebuttal. And so my, my question is still the same as far as Revelation chapter 20. As you know, about these two resurrections, I don't, I'm not quite not understanding what you're kind of getting across there because you're saying this is a spiritual resurrection. But I read... And my rebuttal that Jesus himself even says that the people who experience this first resurrection, they are sons of God. And it's all over the New Testament that there's based on the resurrection of the just and the unjust. And the just takes place when Christ returns. And Paul himself says that I consider worthy to suffer for this. Basically, he wanted to attain this resurrection. And so he was suffering to obtain this special revelation why why does it matter then if he was like why do you have to serve and attain that if we all were going to be resurrected at the same time there has to be some kind of dis distinctness between the first and the second and then you also didn't answer my question as far as um these people who actually came back to life were those who were beheaded for their testimony and who believe in antichrist so can you please answer that question for me yeah which one you want me to answer first Both. um uh the ones that was beheaded what verse was that real quick? The Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. Okay, and that's the ones. That, okay, let, let me ask the first. You're talking about the resurrection again. Yeah. I want to read to you a passage um, in John chapter 5, I think verse 19. 
John chapter 5, verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing in his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loved the Son and showed him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will be shown, show him, so that you may marvel. Verse 21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also, also the Son gives life to whom he wills. Um, right here we see that the Son is the one that raised us and give us from dead to give us life. And we see this deadness all throughout Ephesians 2. And it said we are dead in our trespasses. But how do what? We were brought to life by the blood of the Lamb. And so the resurrection, I mean, Paul is, this is all throughout the Gospels and everywhere else. The first resurrection actually represents Christ, you know, raising his people that were dead in their sins up to him. So if yeah. you, I don't, I still not understand it. So you're saying this resurrection is more of a spiritual resurrection. And the second resurrection, you're that literal? Yeah, it's going to be the resurrection of the body. Yes. So, uh, it's going to be a resurrection of the body. Uh, when the body unite with the actual, our new. So right now, we are in Christ right now. And so we have a new, we are raised in the sense of we're Christ right now. We have a new spiritual spirit in us. But God's also now, we still got our old flesh. This is the dead flesh still that we have. But one day, we're going to get a new, in the sense of body, to match our new flesh. So there's going to be a resurrection. We already have a resurrection of, in a sense, in a spiritual sense now, because we are made alive in Christ. But also we have another resurrection when we get our new bodies in Christ. And we see that, like I said, clearly throughout the New Testament. So you're saying, this is a short, you have to, yeah. this is a short answer. So you're saying that the second resurrection is for believers. The second resurrection is for believers. That's what you're it's saying. It's for believers, yes. It's going to be the body of the believers, yes. Okay, so it does a disservice to the text because it says here, about the second resurrection, verse, Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged for the things which were written. And so John, he lets us know there's basically two resurrections, you, yeah. you know that. Mm -hmm. But this second resurrection seems to be these people who are on the hill right now, coming to life to be judged to go to the second death. And you said this is for believers, but I don't see that in the text anywhere. Yeah, so it's all over the scripture that the actual, um, it's all over the scripture. He's talking about like the the, the the dead, those who are truly not in Christ, they're going to be raised and they're going to be judged at the white throne judgment. It's a resurrection of the dead as well. So you have the resurrection, the first resurrection of the believers, and for those coming from death to life, the second resurrection of the believers, we're going to be ready, and the same thing with death. There's a first death, it's a resurrection of the, in the sense of it was the first death, but also the resurrection of those who are dead in Christ, and those who are dead and not in Christ. They will be judged on the white throne judgment. So somebody died here today, and they're not a believer, they're going to face God at the white throne judgment. They're going to be raised up as well. They're going to be raised up not to heaven, they're going to be raised up for the white throne judgment. Okay, but my question is still the same, because John says in Revelation 20, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no part, but they will be priests of God, and Christ will reign with him for a thousand years. Then I saw a great white throne, and you see these people who are dead in hell right now come to life. So I'm still not understanding, because you're equating the first uh, resurrection to a spiritual one, but the second one, you're saying this is for believers, and the text is saying the second resurrection is for unbelievers. 
I see the test in so a little bit different from from that KJ. Uh, but looking at the text here, is that um, it talks about those all throughout the book of John, uh, book of Revelation, those in a sense of who are beheaded for the faith, who are beheaded. They're gonna sit away on the throne with God. Those who are beheaded, they was on the altar. The prayers goes up for those who truly are in Christ. Uh, for those who are truly in Christ, uh, they will be raised with Christ. And also, new bodies will be raised with them as well, and we, and we see that. Um, you mentioned everything again about, um, you know, I think in Revelation twenty verse four, you mentioned uh, also about the, um, um, uh, what, what did you say about? Um, I think you said something the about the rest of the dead and I come to life until yeah. a thousand years were completed. Yeah, this is the, the rest. Now the rest of the, the dead, the, the rest of those, in the sense of that, some will come back when Jesus come back. Uh, or oh, he's reigns right now, but when he comes back, he's going to come back and we're going to be raised in the sense of some people's not going to be dead. Some people, when he comes back, everybody's not going to be dead. When he comes back, some people might be still living. And by those who are still living, they will be raised with him. But also the believers that already died for them, they're going to be on the throne with him. But one day we should be able to join them. Jesus came back today. We're, we're alive right now. And so we're going to join our brothers and sisters that's already been killed for the faith. And we're going to be there. And so we're going to be one people of God before him. That's the resurrection, the first resurrection. And that's the second resurrection when, um, when it happened, um, when we get our new bodies and things of like that, um, if I answer your question. So I'm still not quite not understand because it doesn't make sense like from the scriptural sense. Because like if you look in Revelation 20 verse 4, then I saw thrones and they had sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus because of the word of God. And it talks about people who had not worshipped Antichrist. These are the ones that came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were over. Here in this time period, the devil is bound. Look in Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations, which are the four corners of the earth. Magog kind of fast forward. And basically, the devil is going to have an attack against these saints who are reigning with Christ on earth. And God's going to destroy all of them. Then it says, I saw the great right throne. And then there's another resurrection that seems to happen because these people are being judged and they're not coming to faith. These are people that's in hell right now and they're finna face the wrath of God in judgment to go to the second hill. So I'm still not understanding what you're presenting. What, what verse 5 said, But the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years were finished. I need to clarify that part too, though. Um, that it is some that was going to be raised in the sense of the kingdom. But some of them, in a sense, are, are in a sense of waiting for that glorious day to come, and um, for that day of resurrection when He raised everyone up with Him forevermore. And so, uh, it, it is the day that's coming when uh, we get our new bodies when He raised everybody up with Him forevermore. And so, um, I just um, I see it flows very well. Uh, let me read this verse: here. "Blessed and holy is that He that partake in the first resurrection." And we know that. Who is blessed? For, 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 for those that are truly in Christ, we see the word blessed all over the place that's given to believers. Blessed are those who partake in the first resurrection. On such, the second death have no power. What's the second death? That's hell. That's the white throne judgment. The second death or judgment is going to happen forever. You don't have to go through that because you're in Christ. So I just got one well, last question. But they pre oh, Go ahead. I got like, there are 30 seconds left. Okay. Um... Just make sure I'm understanding you correctly. So the passage I read in Thessalonians, uh, Paul says that when, when Jesus returns, 
those who are dead in Christ right now in heaven will rise first. And then we who are left, we caught up that's got to meet him. Yeah. And so this time frame, nowhere in Paul say that, that there will be dead people in their sins, unbelievers, raised together in this time frame. But only those who are with Christ, this is the first resurrection. The text right here is saying the same thing. Because after the devil was finally destroyed and thrown into the second hell, there seems to be another resurrection of the unbelievers. Can you explain yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I mentioned it earlier. Um, uh, I think I read a couple of texts about. Um, let me go back to it. Um, uh, how when, when Christ comes back, it's going to be a judgment of the righteous and the unrighteous. Uh, He's going to judge both the righteous and the un uh, unrighteous before Him. And one second, I think we mentioned it earlier. Let me find the text. We we can talk about it later, man. I know my time's up. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was it was. I mentioned I read it earlier that it is going to be a day when God's going to judge the world for the righteous and unrighteous, and that He's going to raise everyone. It's going to be one judgment. It's not going to be several different judgments. It's going to be one eternal judgment on the white throne. Judgment is going to happen. Right. And so, um, I like I, said, I lost I lost what that test was at. Right, you good, man? Yeah. And now your time starts now. Yeah. Uh, my thing. I'm still kind of. Um, kind of really confused about uh the pre-mill stance on in the sense of this um um the second coming of christ and so um right now then where, where is christ located right now seated at the right hand of the father I is he reigning yes okay what's the difference between him reigning now and a millennial reign in the future so george adam led he has a quote he says right now the kingdom is among us but it's not yet fully realized and so right now, Christ's kingdom is here on earth. We know that. Christ has all authority on heaven and on earth. So he's reigning right now on earth, but the kingdom is not yet fully realized. Christ even said in the Lord's Prayer, pray that your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That kingdom we pray to come is in the kingdom and is yet not fully realized. But the not fully realized, um, I think that's kind of getting mostly in the sense that when we get our new bodies, when we get everything there, you know, um, we get all the new things. But it tells us over and over, even in Revelation 2 and 3, talking about this conquering, who's going to conquer, who's going to conquer, who conquers this king is conquering. For those who truly in Christ, they conquer with Christ. And so Christ is already in the sense of this, this kingdom he reigns right now. And even in, say, the Olivet Discourse, you know, we see this picture of all these terrible things that are happening, these things are happening. But Jesus was still reigning even at that particular time as these things were actually taking place. And so to say that Christ reigns, oh, so to, to say that um, I'm, I'm just having a hard time seeing is that that it's going to be a future coming of Christ, that he, he's reigning now, but he's not all the way reigning right now. And I would say, though, is that um, so, so he's not all the way reigning right now. So, again, the text in Revelation 20, that's exactly what it's saying, that he will reign on earth with his saints. I'm not saying that Christ is not reigning right now because the Great Commission says all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to him. But the kingdom is already now among us, but it's yet not fully realized. When Christ returns in his glory, we will receive our glorified bodies and we will reign with him for a thousand years. That's what the text says right here in chapter 20. And in these thousand years, did you say they are literal or spiritual? I believe they are literal, but it can be interpreted both spiritually or uh, allegorical. Yeah. It, it talks about also about, um, um, it talks about also in the text about, you know, the, um, 
yeah um in revelation in revelation 13 i think it's revelation 11 real quick um let's come back to this i know i'm all over place let's come back let's, let's stick back to the actual i want to go back to the two witnesses again okay um what did you say the two witnesses are who are the two witnesses so yes, um, many people who were, you know, again, this belief I'm held in was held by the large portion of the church you know, after the time of John. He wrote the book. And so the they, very, they held on what the two witnesses are. No, I'm saying they held on to Achilles and what I believe. And so uh -huh. the church believed that these two witnesses were, one of them was Elijah and possibly Enoch, but they weren't kind of 100% sure. Many today say that it's Elijah and Moses because of what was seen in the transfiguration. But I'm not quite sure because this hasn't ha happened yet. Well, we go to the text that lets us know that these are actually two prophets, not the church, but it says two prophets. Um, it's, it's, it's two prophets. And so, so my thing is, it's again, I think it's again in, um, in Revelation 11 here. I think what, what you're doing here, you're doing it again, is that um, you, 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 it's kind of hard to see the continuity of how these scriptures work together. And so by you saying that, hey, you know, it, it, the, the, the thousand years where Christ going to come, you know, um, at this millennial, a thousand, I guess at a certain amount of time in the future, he's going to come back and he's going to reign for a thousand years. Um, not right now, but he's going to come back in the future. But also you talk about the two witnesses now or it's two prophets and things like that. I think, I think, how does that fit together though? How does it fit together by these two prophets? The, how do you see the whole book of Revelation fitting together? Can you explain that for me? Again, we're very similar in how we view the book. We view it both symbolically, but I believe that we shouldn't over-symbolize this book so that no one can understand it. That's how not, that's not how God interprets like scripture for us. We're able to understand what he's saying, right? And so symbolism can be viewed with things such as like or as. That's how we view symbolism today in literature, using similes or metaphors. But in our text, it tells you who the, these two witnesses are. In chapter 11, verse 3, it says, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days. So, so you said they prophesy for 1260 days. But we, do we see that 1260 anywhere else? Yes, in Daniel. But somewhere else, do we see it anywhere else? I think Revelation as well, right? Yeah, we see it in other places too, uh, 1260. And the 1260 actually represent in a sense of. It's the same amount of time in the sense of it's the majority same amount of time. And so by, again, by excluding these passages, it like, I don't know, it's like the pre-mill, like you guys are just, you guys are putting these things in different plots. And it makes it so confusing. And so it's kind of hard to really ask questions to see this, man, because I don't see how the continuity, how they work together. And so even when you just, um, um, answer the question and things of that nature, I'm still having a hard time really seeing how it all fits together and things of that nature. So um, I guess my next question would be then, so um, where, where uh, so it's going to be, um, tell me about the resurrection again. So it's going to be two resurrections or one resurrection? That's, John says it's two resurrections. So you have when Christ returns, he rises up all the dead in Christ. So people in heaven right now, so let's say if Christ will return tomorrow, everybody that's in heaven right now will raise first when he returns. And those who are left here on earth will be raptured in the sky to meet him. So um, pre-meal as well, um, you mentioned something about literal interpretation. Mm -hmm. So do you interpret the book of Revelation literal? So earlier I mentioned that we both are in agreement this is a symbolic book. But I believe symbolism can be understood through the lens of how we view it today in literature. 
like when I say like her ass or I use metaphors, I'm able to understand what is symbolism and what is literal. And John, usually when he uses like things such as the beast, the serpent, the witnesses, the hundred four thousand, he gives you indicators of what these actually mean. He tells you throughout the book what this symbolism is actually interpreted through. He's actually interpreted the book for us so we know what it means. So 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 um so how do you take the word thrones then in Revelation twenty? So kind of what you, spiritual literal. So kind of what you said, you said usually when you see thrones, it's usually referring to heavenly thrones. But like if you remember in Jesus' gospel or in the gospel of Jesus, he says that you who will be I mean, in the age to come will sit upon the twelve thrones of you know reign over Israel. And that will happen in the Millennium Kingdom. But right here though is that uh so in Revelation twenty thrones, um it tells us and I saw thrones and they sat upon them and judged was given unto them. So this is the millennial kingdom when this happened on at this particular in verse four? Yes, because verses one through three kind of tells us that. So so we're John in the millennial kingdom in chapter one. Chapter like the very first chapter? Yeah, Revelation one. No. This is the vision that he sees. All these things take place. And this right here in chapter twenty takes place after nineteen. So, so when does the millennial start in Book of Revelation? The as millennial as, kingdom. As soon as Christ returns and destroys Antichrist and reigns, like he. So, what Book of Revelation? So, in Revelation twenty. Yes. That's the millennial kingdom. Yes. So, what about other places? Thirteen, twelve, this other places in Revelation. Is that the millennial reign? This is the seven-year tribulation. The seven-year tribulation. Yes. Okay. Um, yes. So tell me. So, what is the travel seven tri seven years tribulation? If we go through the Book of Daniel, we see that in Daniel chapter nine, we have seventy weeks. Each week means seven years. And so all of those years have been fulfilled except one. And Daniel tells you what happens at the, the end of that. Anyway, fast forward. At the end of that seven-year tribulation, that's when Christ returns. That's why I'm post-truth. So, so the 70 weeks, does it have anything to do with Christ's birth in the 70 weeks? But one week hasn't happened yet. So 70 weeks from when Daniel heard from Gabriel that 70 weeks are going to happen, then Gabriel's going to come back and tell him, is that 70 weeks? Does that have anything in relation to him? Do they have any relation to the 70 weeks? As well, Christ's birth, so Christ's coming. 69 of those weeks have already been fulfilled in history. We see that right now. But one week has thus been yet fulfilled. That's why we have the seven-year tribulation. Oh, hold on. So, so let me ask you this again. So in Daniel chapter 7, they said it's going to be 70 weeks and everything is going to come. Then Gabriel comes back. And so you're saying it took 69 weeks. That wasn't 70 weeks. That was 69 when Jesus was born. So what I'm telling you is 69 of those weeks have already been fulfilled. Now, when, when was the 69 fulfilled? When Christ was born? So if you look at the vision, it says, um, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to make an end of sin, to make a tongue for iniquity, to bring everlasting righteousness. And then he basically says the Messiah, the prince, will be, uh, let me go back a little bit. So you already know and discern that from the issuing of this decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah, the prince, that will be seven weeks and then 62 weeks. And it will be built again. And then we see another again that this last week hasn't happened yet in the text. So. Yeah, uh, I talk about it out. But um, I just, I see that as, I see that as being in a sense of the 70 weeks referring to, um, the 70 weeks referring to Christ being born. Uh, and Christ, um, um, Christ being born. And so Gabriel, exactly when Gabriel said it, Gabriel said it, Christ was actually born on a certain, after the particular time. Um, but I just don't see it in the sense of trying to see how this fulfills this. I think this messes up the continuity of the entire book of Revelation again. I think I'm just, it makes it difficult to understand the book with your, uh, uh, with your position. 
All right, and so now we have about three to four minute closing remarks. I'll let Chris go first and then I'll end this off. Yeah, man, KJ, thank you for the invite, man. This is like, I'm new to a lot of this and uh, I'm not an expert in trying to debate and walk through this. Uh, but I would tell anybody that's listening to this is that um, the book of Revelation is it's a book to, to encourage the church. The book is for us. It's not for us to be confused by the book. It's for us to let us know that Jesus wins, that Jesus has conquered, and he will come back and judge the dead. And so um, a lot of the stuff that's happened over the year with dispensational, when I have, how they interpret seven and seven weeks and seven-year tribulation and things of that nature, um, all that is, you know, is not in a sense of um, in continuity of how to understand the entire book. Um, this is a very new approach. You're talking about seven-year tribulation. Um, throughout the history of the reformers and things of that nature, um, even though a lot of them was historical pre-mill, they still, a lot of them didn't hold to the actual, say, seven-year tribulation. Uh, but the seven-year tribulation, I would say, say, seven year, is that uh, John talks about it in actually Revelation chapter 1. He talks about that he was actually in the time that even though he was going through tribulation, um, he was going through tribulation, um, but also there's going to be more tribulation to actually come. And that's where we're at right now today. That's where the first century is at. We're all going through the tribulation. And what has happened is parallel progressivism that's happening in the book of Revelation here is that all these things are happening together. The book of Revelation, you don't read Revelation 1 all the way to chapter 20. You read the actual book in the sense of in a parallel way and to be able to see that all of it works together. For a prime example, Satan is thrown out of heaven. Satan is here to devour. At the same time, the church, the invisible church exists during the same time. Satan, the beasts are coming in trying to devour the people. We're trying to hold fast to what Christ is doing. All these things are happening right now. We're going through tribulations right now. Look at my brothers and sisters in China and all around the world getting beheaded for the faith. You're telling me that's a, it's going to be a worse tribulation than what's happening in China and Arabia and things of that nature? No. Right now, we are living in the last days, and one day Christ is going to come back. He's going to judge the world. And when he judges the world, we're going to be raptured up with him. We're going to be with him forevermore. As you guys know, my name is KJ, and I just close this out. Um, again, my belief is the chiliasm or what is known as historic pre-mill. And so my problem is the reformers did such a good job getting us back to the word of God, but they still kept two of the Catholic tradition, as you guys know, infant baptism and also mill. And so my problem with a lot of the mill thing is it, it didn't originate until like the third century. As you guys know, people such as Origen, Eusephus, and then it was Augustine. Up until that point, for the first three centuries, think about this, 300 years, every single Christian held to what is known as Chiliasm, what I presented to you today, historic pre-mill. Every single Christian held to this. And so it wasn't like this is something new. This is what the large majority of all Christians believed in. And it wasn't like the second century, again, origin, you see this, and then Augustine, that this view became the prominent view. But up to that point, this was the common view. And not only that, John... He also had disciples that he poured into, and his personal disciples believed everything I just presented today. And so I kind of find it hard that if John wrote the book of Revelation, and he knew what he was writing, and he had disciples, and they believed what I believe, it's hard for us to come to any other conclusion, especially when there's several passages in the Old Testament supporting this earthly reign of Christ on earth. But I know one day 
people always say it'll all pan out in the end. So <laughs> even though me and Chris may disagree now, we'll still be dear brothers in heaven. And when Christ turns, we all will understand exactly what is going to happen. And so thank you guys for listening. Uh, be expecting more episodes to come soon. I'm starting a new series on justification. I'm going to drop another episode on that. I have a couple more friends I might do these episodes with. But thank you again, Creston, for being a part of this. Man, thank you, man. It was my delight, man. I, I think it was good. I think it was edifying for the church to be able to see the two brothers, man, that are trying to work through this together. And um, we're not experts in all this, but trying to work through it and better understand it. And um, <laughs> But uh, I, I'm going to save my last... Uh, I'm, I'm going to save to next time, man, uh, a couple of things I was going to say about Augustine and, and those guys, man. But I really enjoyed this podcast, man. I hope it'll be able to bless the church. No problem, man. Like you guys know, nothing in this life is free. And like always, my cash name is PAY1515.